All right. Uh, good evening, everyone, uh, and welcome to the second Board of Selectmen meeting for Tuesday, February 15th, uh, 2022. Uh, this meeting is called to order, and it is being video recorded. Uh, we will begin by taking a moment of appreciation for our troops serving around the globe in defense of our country. Thank you. I'll note at the end of this meeting, we will go into executive session uh, for the purpose of discussing the purchase exchange lease or value of real property and to conduct contract negotiations with non-union personnel to wit the fire chief and the open meeting will not resume at the conclusion of the executive session. So our first agenda item is a discussion, a potential vote to approve the draft housing production plan. I don't think Jen Golson is going to be here. No, I believe Sarah is going to be at But Sarah will be discussing. Is she Zooming or is she? Oh, oh live and in person. Hello, Sarah. Hi. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I apologize for the um, mistake on the agenda that said that Jen was going to be here tonight to present. In fact, there wasn't a lot of substantive differences between the drafts that you saw. And then we had um, a little bit more discussion with the Affordable Housing Trust um, than was uh, originally anticipated within the scope. Um, so we just used um, a little um, extra funding to work out the final details rather than have her come back for a second presentation, which is essentially the same information. I think you'll see just clarifications, a little bit of edits where the, um, uh, well, Dale Street School was referenced and some reorganization of right. strategies. Okay, and, and I understand the planning board has approved this. Planning board approved it on um, January 7th. Yeah, and I almost said December at first. So, January yeah, I really wanted to clarify it's February 7th. So we're not yeah. that far behind the planning. <laughs> no. It was January 7th. We no. <laughs> for, um, just for uh, points of reference, the once the 2020 census actually becomes finalized, we're going to be looking at Safe Harbor targets of 45 units for Safe Harbor for two years, 23 units for one year. But we're about 29 units away from the 10%. So the safe harbor targets um, for having a certified housing production plan aren't as relevant. After this year, right. After uh, we um, meet the 10%. Got it. Okay. Um, discussion on this, uh, Pete. There were just a couple corrections, Sarah, that I would, there's a misspelling on page 14 of the word initiatives. Yep. Uh, and on page... 15, it, it doesn't really matter, I guess, but it, with respect to the uh, accessory dwelling units, I thought it could apply to all of the boxes across. Um, it's only in a couple of the four or five. Um, For the schedule? There's a matrix yeah. on page uh, 15, I think. Okay. Um, and then on uh, page 29, it refers to the uh, needed... Uh, uh, SHUs is 16. I think that should be 29 that we need yep. at the moment. Okay, thank you for catching that. Would you say page 59? That's on page 29. Oh, 29. And then I had two questions. One was uh, about the Housing Choice Community grant money. Yep. What Can you explain that to me? 
because I'm always interested in grant money. Oh, sure. And I know you've been getting well, a whole lot of grants for us, so thank and, you. And we actually received a Housing Choice grant um, earlier this year uh, for the um, intersection improvements at West and 27. Oh, okay. Um, so um, as a Housing Choice community, it makes you eligible for a pot of money that can be used for um, any capital, per um, ca capital expense. It doesn't necessarily have to directly relate to a particular housing development, um, although improvements at that intersection certainly do lend themselves to a couple of housing nearby housing developments. And then, uh, and then my final question had to do with this. It was an editing thing. I saw that the mm -hmm. words uh, uh, about uh, diversity and equity and inclusion had been edited out in a number of different places. Why was that? I can't speak to that. Pardon? I can't speak to that. Um, uh, I have to go back and look. Okay. Um, well, I think sorry. it still is in the overall goals. Right. I mean, I think one of the issues, Pete, is that with some of those things, we can't actually legislate for it. In other words, you can't set have set-asides based on race or any of those classifications. And so I think the clarification I think it was in that context, is Mike, but... um, that if you... You know, if you look in number two for promoting, promoting socioeconomic diversity, that notes that that will help meet local housing needs and promote a more racially and ethnically diverse, equitable, inclusive community under number two. Page 14, you're on. Under, under, number, yeah, under number two of the main goals. Yeah, well, I just noticed that it, it was like half a dozen different places that it had been mm -hmm. edited out, and I wasn't quite, I was just curious as to why. A lot of the language was softened or clarified in the, um, between the drafts um, based on comments that were received um, during the public comment period. Okay, that was, those were my questions. Thank you. Gus? I have several comments that I'm going to, they're actually going to connect into our subsequent discussions later on around this uh, multifamily yeah, housing because yep. they're all connected. Um, and Sarah, you got my you got my comments. I would ask you if at this point now to get them to Pete and Mike if they yeah. they don't already have them. Mike, you probably need them worse even than you do, Pete, because you're on the Affordable Housing Trust. Um, as an administrative step that has to be submitted. I'm fine with this and I actually appreciate I had a whole raft of comments the first time around and when I went through and did a comment by comment audit, <laughs> I was actually su pleasantly surprised at how many of the, uh, I, I'm used to having some comments get ignored or <laughs> overruled. Most of them actually got built in. So uh, on an administrative level, I was appreciative of the effort on an administrative level, I'm good with the plan. Okay. Uh, but the thing I want to talk about tonight, and I'll pick it up later, but I'll start it here because there's things in here that are relevant, is the strategic issues of where we're headed as a town. The, the, quest, the big question, Mike, you may have an easy answer to this, but between this and the action plan, we're 29 units away from getting a hitting the 10% goal. Assuming that the state hospital redevelopment project goes through as proposed, we will pick up 334 additional SHI units on top of, the, of these. And we need the, if we want to get Safe Harbor for this May, we need these 29 units. So the, the unfortunate thing uh, is that we took long enough to figure out the strategic plan for the reuse of the state hospital that we have timed it perfectly 
to achieve our 10% goal without relying on the state hospital just in time to have 334 additional SHI units come in. So in the big picture, I'm looking and saying, so at the point we hit 10%, potentially within a couple of years, we'll be at something more like 17% affordable housing. Yeah, I was that's, thinking, yeah, 15 or 16. So yeah. that's the strategic issue that's that's on my mind right now about where exactly are we steering the ship. When I went through the housing production plan, there are a number of actions in here. And I understand this isn't a contract, so we may not do things. It's but, a menu. Uh, <laughs> not a yeah, but there's a, there's a few things with the menu that at least have price tags on the appetizer list, I guess is the way to put it. Um, We've already the, the we've already got the the money available to subsidize the conversion of of current buildings. Good with that. One of the things talked about here is consider the creation of a home buyer assistance program. To me, that's not a good idea. A, we don't need to promote that. We have we're going to have plenty of units. And B, that money is coming from somebody somewhere, which I assume means it's coming from taxpayers to hand to someone who would like to buy homes. And I'm I'm inherently suspicious that we, it just doesn't sound like a good idea to get involved in that. So that's one. Um, similar, I had a similar reaction to the CPA proposal, although I actually don't have a problem if there's members of the public who would like to once again have the town consider adopting a tax increase called CPA. Um, it, it hasn't been discussed in a long time. Uh, and so I, I'm not against that. However, the CPA as a means of funding a continuing effort through the Affordable Housing Trust to do more stuff when we are at that goal. And, and I would add to this that other, there's another thing I think in the action plan maybe about looking for 50,000 a year in funding. I don't know, the Affordable Housing Trust has done a great job of getting us 20 to 29 units short of 10% without using any money effectively. It's now- Can I, can I jump in on this? Yeah, okay, I, th I think there's a, a yeah. philosophical issue here, Yep. right? And so if you define the goal of the trust and of developing affordable housing solely as complying with the state SHI requirement, mm -hmm. then you're absolutely right. Yep. That once we get to that 10%, we should close up the trust and shut it down, yep. right? Now we intentionally wrote the bylaw of the trust more broadly that we would not be tied solely to the state's definition mm -hmm. of affordable housing mm -hmm. and that we would have a broader view of affordability. We'd have a broader view of what we're trying to accomplish. And I think a lot of these initiatives are in here, as I said, they're a menu, mm -hmm. right? And, and I, I, I personally wouldn't favor um, a tax for a home buyer assistance program. If there was state and federal money made available mm -hmm. for home buyer assistance programs and the, the town had the ability to tap into that mm -hmm. to assist, I don't think we should rule that out. Okay. Um, because I think one of the concerns you hear a lot about, and you've raised this, is sort of this concern about sort of the changing nature of the town, people being priced out of the town. And the reality is that the, the affordable housing as defined by the state doesn't really do anything about that. Mm -hmm. Right. So we, we adopted um, intentionally at the outset of this process in a, a, a preference, not an exclusive preference for rental housing because of the incentives offered by the state for developing rental housing. Right. So you, you Mayfield State Hospital, you, you will get 334 um, SHI units, but you're not getting 304 affordable units, right? You're getting 25% uh, of those are affordable. And, and even as we've seen when the rents come in, the way affordability is calculated, it's still pretty high, right? These are not, 
these are not really low rents. And in fact, in a lot of the units, if you look at the numbers, the difference between the market rate and the affordable rents are not dramatic. Mm -hmm. So if you look at our existing rental units, if you look at what's being charged for the affordable rent, which can go up, mm -hmm. it's not that far away. So philosophically, you're absolutely right. If the only goal is to get to 10% and get the state off our back and not have to worry about 4DBs, then you can just sort of put this aside. If we're going to have a broader goal of trying to maintain some of that socioeconomic diversity in the town so that you don't, because left to its own devices, what's going to happen is the, the change is going to continue, right? Because the market, the, 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 the market pressure will always be to turn a $400,000 ranch into a $1.2 million colonial in the development pocket, $400,000. That's always going to be, like the person selling that ranch is always going to be able to get the best price selling it to a developer. The developer is always going to do the best tearing it down and building a much bigger house. Mm -hmm. And then people will complain, well, we're becoming like Wellesley, we're becoming like this and like the rest. And that's what's going to happen if there's nothing going happen. Right, that's what is happening. Right. And so one of the things we've talked about with, with the Affordable Housing Trust is sort of what comes after 10%, mm -hmm. right? Are we done? Or do we start to look more towards uh, some initiatives that would preserve, because I'm not a huge fan of the state affordable housing bureaucracy. I don't think it's a success. I think mm -hmm. the general approach of the, the soak and subsidized model isn't a great one. It's not a great one for social co cohesion. It's not a great one for having you know, socioeconomically diverse mm -hmm. towns, because it really depends on having a large number of people able to, to foot the very large tax bill mm -hmm. um, to subsidize people on the other end while you're still maintaining sort of artificially high real estate prices by general government policy. So mm -hmm. I, I am sympathetic to the the idea, but I think that's sort of the next step. And we don't know what the answer to that is, right? Some of it will depend on what happens to the state hospital. I think some of it depends on what comes down from future administrations, right? We don't know who the next governor is going to be. We don't know what his or her approach is going to be to this. We don't know if 10% is going to remain the number. We don't know if a lot of these regulations are going to remain the same. But I do think, and I, and I for me personally, if we have the ability within um, within the, the tools available to us to try to preserve some of that socioeconomic diversity in Medfield outside of capital A, capital A's affordable housing, you know, the trust is the right vehicle to do that. The trust is the vehicle that can own property. So for example, it could develop essentially market rate senior housing that would fall within that, but be owned by it um, in, a, in other areas. So I think that's sort of the philosophical point. If, if, the, if the conclusion of the town is, look, we get to 10%, we're done, fine. But I think that I do think there's a further conversation to be had because the notion around housing affordability is much broader than it's just defined by the state. So that's that's sort of the philosophical point. So I think, that at least directionally, I agree with your philosophy there. Certainly, I've been pushing senior house, you know, senior housing based on. So I, I agree with the direction. What what where I've come, and I and I'm I don't I'm not going to get in depth into it here because I do want to get into depth when we get to the multifamily zoning. Um, what I concluded over the last couple of weeks as I mulled over a number of things is that we have a strategically incoherent planning context right now. And I'll, I'll explain that, the first half of it right here. All of the things that are in here that talk about raising money, that's why, I, you know, that's where that was coming from. Uh, there's, two, there's actually two things that I want to point out that are in this plan. And this is a lead into the conversation I want to have later, so I'm not going to drag it out. At the beginning of chapter three, the second bullet under key findings, Where one of this? the, uh, this is page 29 on the plan. Second bullet under the blue box key findings basically says 
about 83% of housing units have three or more bedrooms, but 47% of households have two or less people living in them. So what the, the conclusion there is that people, many people in Medfield are overhoused. Right now, as of at least last summer, my wife and I qualify with our four bedroom colonial after our youngest son finally moved, I think permanently down to Brooklyn. After assuming we don't have a COVID two, then he has to come back and work out of our basement for another two years. So technically we're overhoused. I wanna point something out. When the, the strategy of the town prior to, you know, when Mike Sullivan was here has always been to not have large amounts of housing open up for multi-children families because of the cost implications it has for the town. So I'm not making an argument. This is the, my, most of my comments today, tonight are going to be editorial in nature. I'm making an observation that the strategy the town has had to control the growth of its schools has been to control the amount of housing that's large enough to handle multi-children families. And just to make clear, that doesn't mean we're a scrimy town. Medfield has been and remains one of the towns with the greatest percentage of its population, 18 and under, in the entire state. So when we talk about this, this is not, oh, we don't want any kids in town. This is, we have a lot of kids in town right now. As we, if we decide that too many people are overhoused in their multi-bedroom homes that exceed the number of people in the home. The day that I and my wife, for example, decide to sell our four-bedroom colonial to find some more reasonable two-bedroom home that's smaller and more affordable with lower taxes here in Medfield, I am relatively sure we will go from being a tax positive contributor where we pay about $8,000 more in taxes than it probably costs the town maybe even better than that, because so far we haven't needed any ambulances to come to see us for a while. And we'll be replaced by a family that I will predict with a four bedroom house. We'll have at least two children. When we got here, we had three and we had a fourth while we were here. And that will turn that house from being an $8,000 tax positive house to probably a $25,000 tax negative house when you work in the, the education. I'm making that as an observation that this actually does represent a strategic shift if we are going to methodically start to open up family housing, build more affordable multi-bedroom housing. There will be lots of people that will want to come here, but they will not be the people who are going to be paying for the costs that are coming into the town. And I think that has profound implications. Right. But, but I think that you have to keep in mind, right, that happens already. Right. And, and, and This will accelerate. It, well, it depends on what you're talking about, right? I mean, if if that's the case, then that's obviously an argument for like not going ahead at the state hospital, right? It's an argument for not doing anything. Um, and it's also a question of numbers, right? It's also a question of numbers. I know there's the crude suburban math of, you know, the number of kids in the house times the per pupil education, and that's tax positive, tax negative. And I mean, there's a lot of uh, problems with that just analytically because it's not entirely correct. Um, certainly not why, in the, in the narrow so I, I well, just, But I'm just yeah. saying that, that some of this depends on what you're talking about for numbers. Right? There's nothing in this plan that says we're looking to add a thousand new housing units. Not in this plan. We'll, we'll get there when we talk multi-flaming zoning though. Right. Look at uh, me the, when the you're old, talking yeah, about the, that 3A the, the zoning. One, the, one other, the one other point I want to make in the, in the, in the housing production plan is page 30 which has the population project. And this is really where I concluded that we have a strategically incoherent planning context. 
uh, you'll see that the projected population by the state in this plan basically is projecting a decline in population between now and 2030 and a shift in population from the current distribution by age group toward a, an older population. That is distinctly different than the MSBA's population projections that we used to project the schools. And, I, and I'm not in a position to say one is right or one is wrong. If this is right, that the population is going down, then certainly all of these ideas about ways to increase our housing doesn't make a whole lot of sense if the projection is right. Uh, and if this is right, then the projections we've been using for the schools and whatever we continue to, or whatever we decide to use is the projections for the school project get thrown into a into sort of. Yeah, I mean, it's know, been true for as long as I've been in town government that uh, people who are looking for money for seniors tell you the senior population is going to grow and people who are looking for money for schools are telling you the school age children population is going to grow. Just but, but, and, and this has been, no, this has just been true. And look, I've, I've had plenty of arguments with plenty of people about both of these things. I tend to think that if you look at the whole country and where things are going, the state, this number here is more correct than, than the MSBA number was. But again, it, it's projecting um, something that, without great certainty. So I think you're right that there is, is uncertainty about that and we can't necessarily control it. Um, but I, I think... Well, my, my point is, but at the point that you start making plans to the extent that those plans lead to any actions whatsoever, like it or not, you do have to decide which uncertainties are less uncertain in your mind than others to be the planning time. My, my point here, and again, it's editorial and it's observational. We have two projections on population that are in vastly different directions. And I, as I look at a plan like this, with a projection like this, I would assume there would be some degree of logical connection between the projections that we're accepting in our plan and the actions that we're prioritizing on what it is we think we should take. When I read it, it wasn't clear to me that the actions were all in the direction of increasing housing, but the projection was that the population was going down. Well, they're like, not, they're not, those aren't, those two aren't necessarily intention because we have increased housing substantially over the last 40 years and the population has remained the same. So our census population in 2020 was the same as it was in 1980, and we've added, you know, 1,500 housing units since 1980. And I think that's likely to be the continuing trend. I mean, I, look, I've been clear on this for 10 years of where I think this is all going. Um, I think that's where it's going. Um, I don't know necessarily what conclusion you draw from that. In other words, if the population is declining, are you better off building less housing? I mean, if your view is you should only build housing for people who are already here, then sure. But obviously, we're in a much broader market than just Medfield. We can't keep people out. As much as we'd like to keep those Dover people from moving here, we can't. Um, and so I think it, it does have interesting issues for the town in general if this trend is going to continue. And I'm reacting more to my point about the, I agree that people want to come here. They're going to want to come here. We'll get into some of my thoughts about that when we get to the multifamily zoning. But... My point is, to the extent that we're deliberately doing anything, those things we decide to deliberately do, and especially those things we decide to put money into to do something, we need to be very thoughtful about it. Because right now, as I look at this, I see, I see a projected trend that wouldn't lead me automatically to want to be overly aggressive about some of these ideas. Now, as you said, this is a menu. These are things we might do yeah. if the wind blows in the particular direction that says it makes sense. I get that. Uh, I'm not actually trying to argue 
you know, positions here. It's that yeah. I've been trying to actually integrate this, the zoning, the schools, uh, taxes, upcoming budgets. And as I think about all those things to try to get to a coherent perspective, I kind of said, well, part of the problem here is we don't have strategic code. We don't have any strategic coherence on the planning context to even start from. So enough said, I'll, I'll come back in with more later, but. So I guess, Gus, what I would say to you is that, I mean, these are just data points and, and, and what the data tells me, and I think that, that most people are in agreement with is that there are a lot of, there are gonna be older people in town and that we don't really have much housing that is targeted towards the older people in town. Uh, that figure that you initially uh, uh, noted on page 29 is clearly shows that, that mm -hmm. everybody's like you and Gene are living in a house that's too big for you, so. We'll give you we'll give you three months to move on. Well, you guys stay my, as long as you want. You have my, my point is, no, we were not, I, I'm obviously biased, I guess, but my <laughs> guess is the town would say we would love to have you stay in your four bedroom colonial, paying a net eight thousand plus to the town as long as you would like. And then at some point, we'll oh, I think that's getting up the stairs. Yeah, I think that's true. That we we want to we want to have policies that encourage people to stay in their homes. And that's, I think that's one of the things that's been missing that we don't have a uh, tax policy where we help older people to pay their property taxes like Sudbury does, mm -hmm. where, well, they, where they assist the people to stay in town uh, financially. I think we should look at that. Uh, but I also think that we should seriously look at these uh, accessory dwelling units because that can give you the, the thousand square foot home yeah. on the existing lot that is perfect for the, uh, uh, the single or the two person family which apparently we have a lot of in town. And I, and I think actually in that survey, the house, senior housing survey, it was the issue isn't we want people to be able to stay in their homes just for the sake of staying in their homes. My, my experience is no, the older you get, the more town. you're inclined to stay in your home longer than you probably should. But there are a lot of people, or have been a lot of people in Medfield who have lived here for a long time who want to stay in the town. Yeah. And I think for sure we should make it possible for them to do that, whether it's in the house they're in right now or it's in a more... Uh, manageable home, yeah, or a rental place yeah. at the state yeah. hospital, or but right. but I think it would behoove us to look at those accessory dwelling units as a way of getting that that small housing that would be very good for okay. older people. Yeah. Anyway, those are my comments, and I'll be coming back in with more. But okay, not till we get to the multifamily. All right. So can we adopt this then? I'm I'm fine. All I said right. administratively, yeah. I'm okay with it. All right. Let's get a motion to adopt this so we can send this off, and then we can get to the multifamily. I, I move. I move that we adopt the updated housing production plan with the edits from Pete. The, the edits from Pete. I'll second that. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? All right. Thank you, Sarah. All right. Thank you. Round two. Right. I, I think before we get started, just to clarify. Uh, Sarah is not proposing this. Um, she has just been asked to brief the selection on the state. Right. Well, I watched the webinar. I watched the <laughs> Thank YouTube. Thank you. So, yeah. I did watch the YouTube so, webinar. We all drew straws and Sarah lost. I was just, that, was, that was exactly what I was going to say, that I clearly drew the Sarah, Sarah I told straw. Nick when I bring a bottle of water, you know it's going to be a good night. Today I plucked out a bottle of beer. <laughs> 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 Sarah, you're just gathering information for our letter. We're going to send you That's comments. absolutely correct. Okay, so I'm glad um, <laughs> that you were able to prep by watching the um, webinar from the administration, Secretary Keneally, um, Chris Clutchman from uh, Department of Housing and Community Development and Clark Ziegler from 
Mass Housing Partnership um, presented the um, guidelines that were issued in December regarding um, the Housing Choice Multifamily Zoning, the changes that were done to the State Zoning Act Section 3. 40A Section 3. Um, so it can either be called MBA, MBTA communities or 3A. Um, you might uh, hear it um, referred to in a couple different ways. So Medfield is considered a MBTA adjacent community. And as such, we are required to provide at least one zoning district of reasonable size that allows multifamily housing by right and complies with density of 15 units per acre. Um, and we have a period of time to determine um, if we have compliance or if we how we can get to compliance or if we choose not to comply. Um, so one of the requirements is that we hold a briefing. So this is that briefing. You've been briefed by the administration. I'm here to collect comments. <laughs> All right, hold on. Let's everyone just stop. We'll check the box. The box Thank you. Very well noted. <laughs> we'll certify the briefing has occurred on February 15, 2022. <laughs> okay. Um, and then we are required to submit this um, community information forum by the beginning of May. And then um, we are looking to... Um, submit information whether or not we think we comply or don't. Um, and then there's a period of, I think, almost two years that if we want to come into compliance to pass um, certain zoning changes. Um, but essentially, the um, reasonable size is an area of 50 acres. As I mentioned before, the density is 15 units per acre. Um, so that means the minimum multifamily district unit capacity requirement for Medfield is 750 multifamily units, according to the draft guidelines. And um, we're able to provide comments to DHCD now as they prepare the final Guidelines. So I'm not sure how much detail you want me to go in now, because I think that you're ready to go into that detail. <laughs> um, but we'll have in the memo, you saw that there were um, the grants that we've recently been eligible for because of the state funding and um, some local densities that we can use for um, comparison. Yeah. So. Pete? I would start by saying that the uh, the state uh, uh, homework that uh, that that was a terrible presentation that they put together. Oh, okay. um, unfortunately, very dense slides. They don't know how to do slides apparently, and the whole I just thought the whole thing was terrible. Um, so it was very disappointing for someone that was kind of interested in, in learning more about this. I didn't learn much more, so mm -hmm. that was very disappointing. I guess my big question is, I have two questions. One is that we don't really have a choice with this. This is, this is a requirement now, isn't it? It's a requirement in so much as legislation has passed, but the guidelines that inform what that district um, consists of, I think has the ability to waive the um, 15 units per acre 
I believe was written into the, the density requirement, I believe was written into the legislation. I'm not sure if the 50 unit, uh, 50 acre size was written into it. So there might be some um, wiggle room there. We have, but we have to do something, isn't that? Yes, and I think to a certain extent we have done something. I, from a personal perspective, when I first saw the uh, legislative changes last year, I said, "Oh, phew! We just passed the state hospital district, so we must comply because that allows for quite a few multifamily um, units." Um, per acre. And when I originally did the initial calculation, when they didn't have an area associated with it, I just took the footprints of the buildings and the number of units that were proposed in the master plan came up with a 30 units per acre number. So I thought all year that, oh, we have got to be um, sitting pretty until I saw the 50 acre minimum size in the um, guidelines. So that definitely caused me to pause and, you know, but I'm also reflecting that these are drafts and part of your co um, comments may include this analysis of the state hospital district. So that leads into my second question very nicely, which was, uh, uh, have you thought about where this might happen in town? I had thought that the state hospital seemed like the likely place to sure. craft this district. Uh, yep. It doesn't, but it doesn't fit the requirement of being close to an amenity. Well, there, there are others wording about that, Gus, that makes it comply. Yeah. Where? What, what wording? In the regulations. It, it, there's yeah, I think being an adjacent community, you have a little bit more um, discretion as far as the location goes because we're not within a half a mile of an actual station. Yeah, so the, it, it, it's something right. like a, a, a suitable downtown site or amenity. Yeah, <laughs> downtown so is an amenity. Is um, and, you know, what we know about 40R and 40B, <laughs> there's a couple of things that are kind of overlapping that are, I think, a little unclear. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry to find. No, that, that was pretty much it. But okay. there, Gus, there is wording in in the uh, in the regulations okay, about I didn't read the regulations. A, a, a suitable site or something very not. Non-descript like term, like yeah. reasonable number. Yeah, well, it's like in the 40R legislation. We didn't qualify for that, but uh, uh, mm -hmm. the state told us that we could use the state hospital. We do have a little more site. We do have a little more flexibility because we don't have a station right in our town. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I don't feel that adjacent when I got to ride drive 20 minutes to get the commuter rail. Right. But right. Exactly. I didn't realize yeah. we were an MBTA community based on. <laughs> Turn? Yeah, oh yeah, go right ahead. Okay. So in, Pete and I are going to play good cop, bad cop with the state a little bit at least. When I, in that I didn't know anything about this until I I went through the presentation. I I was paying less attention to the presentation. I mean, the presentation was helpful in the sense my knowledge was zero because mm -hmm. I read I watched that before I even read your memo. Um, and so I found it helpful because my starting point was zero. May I interrupt and sure. I and say that it's not really my memo. I heavily plagiarized it from my colleague in Medway and I have to give her credit, Barbara St. Andre. <laughs> okay. Well, you did. You gave credit right there. I on the did. I just wanted to. <laughs> and Barbara's watching. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I shouldn't take that comment as you backpedaling away from the memo. It's just you're giving credit to your colleague. I, absolutely. Okay. Yes. That's good to know. Um, the, the, the thing I first liked about it 
was the tone that all the speakers took, which is, oh, we're not forcing you to do anything. It's only the zoning. This is not 40B. It's just something that we'd like to. And just because it's zoned this way doesn't mean you're going to have all these units. And it's it's kind of like putting the sleeper hold on people. And I, I got to the end of it. And I said, that's nice. That's a nice, collaborative, positive tone, not coercive. And then I had some time to reflect on it and said, wait a minute. We just went through a 40B where we were coerced into doing something, and we're on the verge of complying with 40B. We're on the verge of, of, of putting 334 more housing units in at the state hospital, and my assessment of that is, but that won't qualify because those aren't 15, 15 units per acre unless you can use just the envelope of the building that maybe we could cobble together. But then you'd need 50 acres worth, and so we still don't have that. And... So, of course, all they did, they didn't force us to put up units. All they did was strip us of our zoning authority for 50 acres to have multifamily housing because they probably didn't have the gall to sit there and say, now that we've forced you to do 10% 40B, we want it to be 20%. Are we going to do that? And, that, and so I've become pretty cynical about that step by the state because it's a coercive step, even though it's not a coercive step. So I have a few questions. First off, you may not know the answer to this. Do we have 50 acres that, or, or 25 acres plus five other areas that are greater than five, four other areas greater than five acres each that would get us yes. to places we would be happy to have that kind of concentrated housing go into? Interestingly enough, I had a conversation with the Mass Housing Partnership today because they're one of the entities that is going to be offering this technical mm -hmm. assistance. So they're looking at some case studies and um, you know, so I have colleagues there that know that I've been watching this and you know, it certainly reiterated the story about the how I thought we were doing fine until we're not doing fine, right? Mm -hmm. Um so we talked about the state hospital today. We talked about the subdistricts, the land area of the core campus and the West Slope that do allow multifamily by right. We talked about um that is approximately thirty five acres. Um, and then maybe if we add in the Arboretum, it doesn't have to be 15 units per acre over the whole site. Um, evenly, it can be more dense over here, less dense over here. So there may be ways to identify areas of development within the state hospital site that could qualify. There may also be areas to, um, rezone existing 40Bs that might sound a little, um, I don't know, it sounds a little scary to me to bring that to town meeting, but maybe we need to talk through it a little bit more. Um, you know, where you already have- My initial reaction yeah. was, was that, okay, figure adding the hospital to other places, we already have developments that yeah. are built this way in perpetuity, and you simply rezone them by right. Yeah. So that, you know, Conceivably, 100 years from now, it's torn down and replaced. It could be replaced without a 40B process. Yes, and so our most of our 40Bs are um, bound by regulatory agreements for affordability and perpetuity. So zoning being what it is, it's just one thing. You have other regulatory tools that give you control over certain properties, like we own the state hospital, so we can control the ultimate density. It doesn't have to be built for 15 units per acre, but it has the capacity to have 15 units per acre. And given the Pulte submission, we know that somebody can do 
at least 700 units there. So that's part of the analysis. And then, um, you know, thinking back to this regulatory agreement situation where uh, with the rent increase from a recent um, uh, inquiry, um, you know, if in 100 years you have uh, this uh, 40B that needs, you know, it needs to be rehabbed, torn down, whatever, they're still subject to this regulatory agreement that they have with the Midfield uh, Board of Selectmen. So, <laughs> so in a certain way, you have some protection. Obviously, that just came up today, needs to be fleshed out, but there are ways to um, think about it strategically, you might say. Um, yeah. I guess I'll be, I mean, if directionally some of those things are possibilities, then it's like this is mostly an annoying administrative interference by the state that we can manage. That's a little different. I was treating this, I was looking like at the state hospital and saying, well, it's gotta be 50 acres, 750, you know, we don't want that. Yeah. Uh, and I looked at the, the table that had the densities mm -hmm. and I looked at the park that was well south of 15 and I'm sitting there saying, so the park is only like half as dense as what the state wants us to put up. And then I immediately went down to Walpole across from the train station and said, is that what we, where are we going to put those kinds of massive inner city block apartment buildings mm -hmm. to comply with this arbitrary standard? So that's, that's where I was coming I mean, from. The reality is there probably isn't even a market for it. For those well, and that too. There that is too. obviously yeah. a Walpole. Walpole you want to talk about tax positivity, the town of Walpole loves those types of things. Those things just are property tax cash cows. But, sure, but, but they also, it seems right to me, just decided station. we're just going, well, that one, I, that one right next to the train station, station. I get. The right. one's up the road. It's like, I think what they said was, look, we got to get the stuff done. Let's just trash the smallest of our town as possible. The people around that are going to hate it, but everyone else is going to love it, and we're going to be done you, with it. You can walk from the train there, too. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah but I, I'm just saying they're, they're massive. For, for our kind of a town, that's a massive development. Yeah. Uh, and even in Walpole, it doesn't feel right, but I, I understand why they did it. Next question. Mm -hmm. What if we tell the state to pound sand on this thing? Mm -hmm. what's, the, what's the implication if we just say, mm -hmm. nice idea, we don't want to do it, you don't understand our town, this yeah. is a rural town, people like the openness, there's no market for it, it's a stupid idea, we're not doing it. Oh. And what? I think that the biggest um, you know, stick here is not being eligible for certain state grants. Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, we're counting on MassWorks as part of the state hospital project. If things were going to go well and smoothly, you know, we could get in an application to MassWorks before um, this compliance period ends, right? Across my mind. Uh-huh, of course. <laughs> so, um, but at the end of the day, it's really just not the ineligibility okay. for certain state grants. Okay. So, the, so the grants are the... The issue is, what's the price to sell our soul? Mm -hmm. I got it. Okay, so that that's good to know. Um, the big so the big question I think with what you just said, Sarah, the big question for my mind is I don't know if this is a big problem for us or an annoying little problem for us. If it's mm -hmm. an annoying little problem, it's a little easier to be positive and constructive in my thinking. Well, I'm uh, pleased to have been able to assuage, even if it's yes, just... You're, you're, two for, uh, <laughs> you're two for two tonight, Sarah. That's, that's, uh, you're two for two. I, uh, and then the only other comment make about what you wrote here is you have uh, seven bullets that were potential 
issues. Mm -hmm. I thought they all were good. Those um, are from Barbara. Okay. Well, Barbara's wherever bullets. they came from, I wasn't smart <laughs> enough to have any to add, but I okay. thought they were all good ones. One yeah. of them is, you know, there's these amorphous terms that's like, well, a reasonable amount of space. Mm -hmm. who, who, you know, 50, I, I, have, I keep picturing like towns like Egremont, Massachusetts, or there's some town out there that like they don't even co do COVID statistics on because there's not enough people uh, in the town. And I'm trying to picture them putting in 50 acre multifamily high density zoning. A lot of those aren't even MBT. Yeah, MBTA. that would well, be. But, but they go, well, they go pretty far out, though. Yeah. I mean, we're out past Worcester and, so, you know, depending on where the lines are. Uh, and, I, and I'm just saying, you know, that's the problem is this is some arbitrary number that led to 750 potential units mm -hmm. in a town of 12,000 after we've already put in a couple hundred affordable units as it is. Mm -hmm. right. uh, and and it, you just put all that together and say, this is not coherent and it's not even logical or effective planning. It's basically forcing a town to comply with a certain cookie cutter guideline put out by the state, probably by people who live in cities who don't even know like what it feels like mm -hmm. who are putting this stuff out. So I thought that I thought the seven points was good. I thought the idea of banding together, I can't imagine that Dover, Sherborne, Millis, a whole bunch of towns around here wouldn't be a similar concern. Mm -hmm. um, if this thing was as bad as I first thought it was going to be, what my math was, okay, we get the 10% 40B. We then get the development at the state hospital that I was thinking wouldn't qualify, which would get us to about 17% affordable. And then this thing with another 750 will be at 25, 30% affordable in our town. And then and this has no restrictions on number of how you know number of bedrooms or size of families. Mm -hmm. So without a doubt, if we do have projects that go in this direction with the kind of school system we have. There will be people who will come in and say, I want that kind of a unit and I'm going to bring all my kids here because this is a great school system. Uh, that gets into the broader question. So I'm going to, I do want to, before we get off this, I want to continue my editorial statement, but I don't, I'd like to, I'm guessing you would like to deal with this first. And then I think, I think it's better to I do defer it that way. to so. you. I think Sarah would like to be done with this presentation. Yeah. <laughs> Can we call this briefing? <laughs> we have been briefed. We didn't say how the briefing had to come out. That's right. Well, you know, I did. we had another, not the one that you saw, but we did have another presentation with our um, group of regional, uh, a regional group of uh, planners. And that was my question, not so much to the administration, but to my colleagues. How are you organizing these events? Um, because putting the onus on, you know, a staff person um, to say, this is what's happening is not the role, or the position that any of us staff people want to be in. We did take it up at the last Norfolk County Town Administrators meeting, and it was a, a very lively discussion. A lot of points that uh, all three of you have made tonight were, were brought up at that meeting. Mike, if you have... No, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, I listened to the presentation, I've read through the regulations, and, and that you can see what they're trying to get at, right? I mean, the, the issue is, you know, for 40 years, we've underproduced housing um, in Massachusetts, um, and, you know, largely based on the rationale that Gus articulated earlier, people are afraid of more kids, they, they associate more kids with expense and costs, and it costs me more money if more people move here, um, and, you know, that's... 
whether that was right or wrong, that's what happened over the course of the last 40 years. Obviously, the demographics have changed substantially. And you know, as I've, I've noted multiple times, you know, as much as I believe in, in trying to produce and increase housing affordability, I think the sort of blunderbuss approach the state takes is not helpful. Um, and it does nothing to address the legitimate concerns over infrastructure and additional costs. It does nothing to take into account the, the particular tax bases of the communities and the ability of the tax bases to absorb um, to absorb additional, whatever additional costs there are, if any. Because mm-hmm. um, obviously a lot of these communities have a huge amount of capacity to absor- absorb additional expenses because they have enormous uh, commercial and other tax sources that we don't have. The state limits um, limits the ability of communities to, to only, it's kind of the most aggressive form of taxation for supporting it, it and ignores the impact on affordability of of those taxes and the ability to maintain um, socioeconomic diversity through that aspect of it, so the cost of housing, both the cost of buying the houses, and and then the cost of taxes. And I think I do think it would be important to put in a comment letter addressing some of these things. I think rather than just saying no, to put in a comment letter and offer some perspectives from communities like ours and communities that are similarly situated. They're all in these you know, have this automatic 750 mm-hmm. about things that would make it easier to do. It's a lot easier to, to take on additional infrastructure if you have, you know, a 60% residential tax base as opposed to 94%. And the logic of this model, and this, you know, this is more reasonable than some other proposals, more reasonable what the law may be a year from now, depending on what happens in the election. You know, the model depends on sort of having a, a, a chunk of people who are sort of immune to the effects of the taxes that are needed to subsidize the program, right? Subsidize the program and, frankly, to subsidize the bureaucracies that manage the programs, which always proliferates um, in addition to the the programs themselves because of um, the amount of paperwork and the, the amount of work that goes into managing all of these things. So I think we ought to put in some comments on it that are constructive, that address the legitimate concerns that we would have over this and the fact that there's different ways, there should be different ways for different communities to contribute to the overall need for additional housing in Massachusetts. Because the statistics that he cited, I mean, he cited at the outset of the presentation, you know, the amount that was built in the last 30 years compared mm-hmm. to the previous 30 years. And it doesn't even break down in the last 30 years how many of, of, of those housing units are not um, – I wouldn't call it not realistic in the sense that there have been so so many things built in the high, high end. Right? The luxury. How many of those units are in the high, high end, uh, many of which aren't even occupied, mm-hmm. right? They're pure investment properties. Um, and so the, the number of units that have been built that are actually affordable mm-hmm. for working people and middle class families is, is even smaller um, who are priced out of these things. And so, and that to me, and, and the state occasionally gets interested in this. I and mean, that's that's what's what's really missing mm-hmm. is sort of the, the people who aren't rich enough to be comfortably soaked, but aren't poor enough to be comfortably subsidized. And there's a huge gap in in that. And and we we see it in this town. Whereas a lot of those houses that that are you know fifteen hundred to eighteen hundred square feet, they go away when they're sold. And and I think that that this kind of and I get I get the MBTA piece of it, but I think some of this stuff has to take that into account. Mm-hmm. And if we could offer some constructive commentary 
on that, I, I think it would be useful um, yeah. and maybe contribute to, to them thinking about this in a different way. That even if you look at the fact that you know Dover is, is you know less than half the size of Medfield has the same number. Right. I, mean, I don't know if anyone would think of Dover as like an MBT. I know it's next to Needham and there's train stations in yeah. Needham, but no one thinks I'm going to go to Dover to, to, to take. Their conversation might be going a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, just, just to pull a ran, town at random off, mm. off the list. So I, I think we ought to put, if we could do it with our, there's a lot of towns that are going to be similarly situated to ours. Well, um, we can start by drafting something specifically from the Medfield Board of Selectmen, yeah. and then we can talk to neighboring communities about signing on and endorsing other types of. Yes, I believe that um, Mike Boynton and Medway would like everybody to sign on to Barbara's uh, mm -hmm. memo. So I believe he'll be reaching out as well. That is. Okay, so. Oh, to, so go ahead. Well, so I agree with all that. Okay. And I, I, Mike, I think I agree with the point you make. And I, I, I want to add a broader set of comments that are not about this, not even about this one thing. But mm -hmm. I, because this was there, because I had a reaction to that, and because I'm doing this tally of 40B, then the development at the state hospital, then this, mm -hmm. uh, and I actually tied it in with... I don't know exactly what direction we're going to go with a reconceived school project, but the, the, the conflicting projections, the high student projection, which now would appear isn't the projection that would be driving whatever we do for reconceiving of this new school project, all of those things swirling around. And one more thing that it's actually an extension of an analysis I did years ago, which was the steady decline of state support, particularly state support for Chapter 70 funding for the schools since 2009. Uh, at the time that I did the analysis, I, the way I did the analysis is I looked at the total town budget, what percent of the total town budget was supported by state funds. And at the time, it was 30%. I did it, I think, for FY, out through for 10 years, so like FY18, and what I discovered is that there had been a steady 1% decline in that percentage over those 10 years. So it went from state supporting 30% of the town budget in 2009 to the state supporting 20% of the budget in, two, in FY18. So with a $65 million budget, you do the 10% math to figure out <laughs> how much less state support the town has been sending to Medfield. Now, a couple things rang for me there. And, and you'll see that the increase in the in the chapter 70 funds this year from the state, I think is 1.18%. So the continual squeezing is continuing. A couple of years ago at the state of the town, that report to the town that Denise Garlick, uh, like three years ago, um, she commented, we were talking off outside of the main presentation, she said, you know, I, I talked to my, my fellow colleagues about squeezing towns like Medfield on the chapter 70 and that how they shouldn't do that because this is a town that really throws a lot of tax revenue into the town, you know, into the state. It's really important. And she said, but colleagues told me, Hey, I've got this problem in my town. I've got English as a second language here. Don't talk to me about Medfield. They're an affluent town. They can, they can handle it is kind of the, the message. Uh, this was around the time that she was actually even on the House Ways and Means Committee. So that, that's kind of interesting to me that other legislators would be able to exert that kind of influence to make that happen. And it's continuing to happen. This year, it was meaningful to me that when Bob Sliney asked her, is there any way we're going to get any relief on Chapter 70 funding? Her answer was, well, actually, 
you know, the other state aid, it's a formula and you're getting your share. But the Chapter 70, actually, that's fair. Now, fair is a really important word because fair basically says, look, you're not, the state is going to continue on the path of decreasing Chapter 70 funds for a town like yours because you can take it out of your back pocket. I'm not faulting her for saying that. I actually think that that was as candid and honest a description of the way the legislature's thinking as we're likely to get. So if you take that as a given, that the state is going to methodically, and probably if they could, they would just cut it completely. Why not? We're an affluent town, we just take it out of our back pockets. But the implications for that is that we become the affluent town that I don't think too many of us actually want us to become. Even if we're reasonably affluent, we don't want us to become that. But it's a self-fulfilling prophecy for the legislature because everybody that can't hang with the big dogs is going to leave. The people who are here who don't care will stay. But then the problem is, if you're going to start to really pump in affordable housing or other forms of small a affordable housing for people, and those people come in, those people are going to put increased demands on the schools, you, get, you start to see how that pressure starts to fall onto the, the people who are actually paying for it. And when you're affluent, people don't hang around. We already are seeing people who don't hang around and they leave. So you don't get the town that was here when I moved here, which was a strong group. They're still here. But that strong group of people who grew up here, who wanted their kids to grow up here, who want their grandchildren to grow up here, and who are committed to the town as a town, even though it's not because they were multimillionaires, it's because they had built a good life, raised families in this town, had something, that is being unintentionally, undoubtedly, destroyed by that trend that says either you gotta be one of the high-end people where, as you said, they're immune to whatever happens, or these other people who are coming in that at least during the time that they're, you know, they're, they're buying affordable homes, taxed at affordable rates, and they're really doing well sending all their kids to school. When I, when I look at that and say, don't fight the legislature, that's just the way it is. We're going to get squeezed. Think of it as if there was no Chapter 70 funds, because at some point, effectively, that's what it's going to look like. What do you do? For myself, given that we already are one of the most highly populated towns with 18 and under, I came out and said, you have to have a plan that says you want to keep your school, if you want to keep the quality of the schools up, it's for either because you want your kids to get a good education or some people want to keep the price of their house up. Well, the price of the houses will go down as taxes go up. You basically need a strategy that says we want to keep our student population right about where it is. We don't want to, you know, we're not trying to get out of the business. But we can't afford to just have an exploding population because the distribution between the highly affluent that are going to pay for it and the people who are coming in either through subsidized housing or, you know, deliberately structured, smallly affordable housing, it's almost like it's a, a barbell. It's kind of, to your point, there's people in the middle to get squeezed. You wind up with this bipolar, you know, distribution of people. And that's... I'm, I'm, I came out, this is all editorial. I'm not, I'm not telling you I got it right. In fact, I'm doing this because if people think I have this wrong, I want to hear their opinions. I'm saying this is destroying, this will destroy Medfield as we know it. I don't know what it'll become. I'm not saying nobody will be alive in the town, but the Medfield that I, certainly in Medfield I moved to, and I actually think the Medfield that the people who live here care about, 
I don't believe can survive in the long run with these trends. You have to figure out some way to stop the, the growth if we, if we can't stop this kind of incessant imposition of, by the state on what we have to do for housing. I, I can't, I, I've spent a couple of weeks trying to, trying to find my way out of that box and I can't, that's where I've come up. And, and I, my interest is just get that out there. I'm happy to hear people's opinions. I, I wanted to share it with the two of you because to me, that is the strategic, we're making decisions, we're gonna presumably make decisions about schools, about housing, about taxes, about budgets. And, and I'm looking at all this stuff and saying, that's our dilemma. And, and a good part of it is, is fueled by the state's current initiatives like this, which maybe isn't as bad as I thought it was if you've got <laughs> part of the answer. So that's, I'm off the soapbox. That was my comment. Uh, it's been two or three weeks of mulling this over and, and I, can't get out of, I can't get out of that box. So that trend of the uh, state aid declining has been going on for a long, long time. I mean, the uh, Mass Municipal Association is basically has, has asked the legislature to do revenue sharing so that we have a predictable mm -hmm. percentage of the state budget every year, but they're not willing to do that. And so that we are getting a declining portion of the state revenues every year. So what is happening is that the expenses of running the municipalities is being shifted from the income tax to the property tax, mm -hmm. which is an unfortunate way to do it because the income tax is, is a little more progressive than the than the property tax. So, Yeah, if you look further back, I mean, I remember you know, Mike Sullivan used to always try out at the beginning of budget season, he called it the Stan Bergeron chart that went back to Stan's position as the principal assessor. And so it started in like 1976 or something like that. And if you look at the number in the 80s, it's even higher. Mm -hmm. If you look at the percentage in, in the 80s, like the, the town budget that was covered by state revenue, I mean, it was a much higher number. And it's only, I, th I think, the analysis you did. I mean, it was, it was remarkable to me, Gus, the analysis you did, which was excellent. When you looked, when you mapped that decline against the overrides we've done in the last 10 years, it's almost dollar for dollar. Essentially, what we've done when we've had overrides hmm. is make up for the decline in state revenue to maintain relatively the same amount of service. You know, whereas between 2000 and 2010, I think we did an override in eight out of 10 years. Hmm. In the last two years, I think we've had two years where we've had an override, hmm. um, an operating, you know, an operating override. And you know, the, obviously, the state legislature. I think the, I think the conclusion, um, I think the political conclusion that the state legislature has reached is that the only real threat to the supermajority in the legislature is some sort of substantial state tax increase. And so they have worked very hard to avoid any sort of state substantial tax increase. They have a bunch of fees. They have a bunch of other stuff they throw on there. And then they have this where they, where they I think they're probably being smart about it, right? You have communities, they think, that won't actually cut services which we haven't, and which other towns like ours have not generally cut services. In fact, we've expanded what we've done as our school student population has declined over the last 15 years um, in terms of programs and, and all of that. Um, and so that's the bet that they're making, is that the people in those towns will be willing to make it up for themselves. And, and certainly so far, you know, the bet has paid off, right? There hasn't been any, you know, the, the pandemic has frozen it, but, the, you know, with, with the exception of a, of a little blip in, you know, 15, 16, which doesn't map carefully onto any major tax increases, there hasn't been some huge outflow of people, right? And obviously the, the pandemic, it may be at once the, once the pandemic ends, you may have some sort of 
uh, sort of this pent up departure. But you know, even as taxes go up, housing prices keep going up. Right? You know, there's lots of reasons for that. Um, and but that reality is that as the housing prices go up, it's it's a catch twenty two. That as the housing prices go up, the only people who can afford to buy them are the people who can afford those prices, right? And so we talked earlier about you know the four hundred thousand dollar ranch becoming one point two million dollar you know, mega mansion or whatever, mini mansion, whatever you call it, um, that looks really nice. And that's, that changes it too, right? And that's not a function of taxation. That that new um, house is going to pay much more in taxes than the old house did, probably with the same number of people and fewer people than were in that ranch in 1975, right? And that's why the population has stayed the same even as, even as the number of um, housing units has increased. And I think, most of the the limited housing that we've built over the last ten years has been of the kind that, you know, ba- you know, based on that arithmetic, has, does not yield a lot of students. It was not. We don't have a, you know, I think it was true of the park. It's been true of almost everything that we've undershot the estimates for um, the number of students that come out of it because, you know, particularly where we don't have public transportation. You know the, that kind of housing is not as attractive for families, right? If you were on about near a bus line or near near a rail line, near a subway line, you could see a family much more willing to say, "We're going to move and we're going to live in an apartment to get our kids in a good school system." That's why, if you look at the only school systems in the state that have seen an increase in the number of students in the last fifteen years, I believe were Lexington, Brookline, and Newton. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but well, if you which have good diversified tax bases, they have they're, they're diversified tax bases, and they're on public transportation, and they're closer into Boston. And so, if you look at most, I mean, the towns that are further out from us have seen even more dramatic declines than we've had, right? And ours are down, whatever it is, fifteen percent. Some of them are down thirty percent. Right? You look at some of the towns that are the next level out, um, are declining even faster um, as more and more of people want to live closer and closer in. Uh, into Boston. Um, so I think you identify a, a, a real issue, and I think it's one that has to be addressed with kind of a multiple, multi-strategy approach. Um, and there's just going to be limits to what we're going to be able to do <laughs> in a municipality because we are limited in how, how we can raise revenue and limited in um, the sources of that revenue. And I, I do think at some point, you know, that maybe, maybe not, um, if the Commonwealth is serious about developing additional housing, they've got to take into account everything that comes with it that you've described. And that if you want towns to build more housing, if you want towns to do more of this, you have to recognize that they're doing it and give them more, right? So the towns that are educating a higher percentage of their citizens than others should get more from the state, right? Regardless of necessarily the socioeconomics of it. And and and, um, and then it becomes less of an issue um, with competing for scarce resources and, and th- you know thinking about housing in terms of uh, in terms of well, how many kids are going to come out of this housing development, how many kids are going to come out of here, and we really just have to keep kids out of town. You know, I mean, um, obviously that's not my philosophy um, in life, but I understand it, um, and that was certainly something that drove a lot of planning um, in the suburbs between 1970 and you know 2010. So, but despite that, we had. The highest, you know, at least part of that, we had the highest percentage of students under 
It wasn't like we were not letting students. No, I mean, there was a, well, there was a ton of development. Right, you have after the, after the Second World War, you have a huge move in the suburbs, you have a huge expansion. And then on the heels of that, you suddenly have a huge increase in student population. But in Medfield in particular, that increase was more distinct than other Oh, yeah, no. At one point, we had the highest percentage yeah. of kids yeah. under the yeah. age of, of in the whole. Because we were, re we were relatively affordable compared to towns with similarly regarded school systems. And we were only that much further out. Right, and so it was a more affordable place to be. Um, and I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, or Dover or Westwood or something. Like that. I don't know Brookline and Newton very well, but through my wife, I know a little bit about Lexington, and I can say with some confidence that Lexington, at one time, several decades ago, was like Medfield. Hmm. So what Lexington is now <clears throat> is where we could be if the you know, that upward affluence path. Just continues on. Well, except they have a highway and they've got more public transportation. Yeah, they they, uh, they had a top school. Yeah, they had a top school. Well, just in terms of the diversified tax base. It's oh, yeah, more yeah. diversified tax base than what we have. So, anything else, Sarah? No. Thanks, Sarah. No, more than done. <laughs> Thank you. You have, you have given us the briefing. All right, now we are welcoming members of the Medfield Energy Committee to, to discuss Town Garage Solar. I see two members of the Medfield Energy Committee here. Good evening. I'm Penny Connor, 3 Donnelly Drive in Medfield, and pleasure to be here with you tonight. I really just want to hit on four items. I'd like to talk a little bit about our committee and this opportunity we have with solar. We'll look at the options that are available to us. We'll talk about the risk, which I think are important to understand, and then we'll look at next steps. So I'm tickled to represent the Energy Committee. We have nine members on the committee, and they bring a wealth of experience to uh, in energy, in solar development, uh, we're really blessed to have a great, great committee. And I can tell you I've been involved now for 18 months chairing this committee. Uh, and uh, we have a team that is so engaged. So proud to be a part of that and happy that Megan is here with me tonight. We are excited to bring to the town the opportunity to add solar on top of our DPW facility. This is a win-win. We can rapidly advance towards our goals to reduce carbon and achieve our carbon neutrality by 2050. And we can bring tremendous savings to the town by reducing the costs associated with uh, the energy procurement. This particular facility has a 216 kW direct current uh, facility that we're looking at. Um, and the installation could would produce more than the DPW uses by it's 170 percent so great opportunity to uh, to create value here and we can reduce 370 tons of carbon I would say that our committee has spent they're very very dedicated and very interested in making sure that we've been deliberate and thorough and presenting the best opportunities for the town and that we've thought thoroughly embedded the cost associated with or the best options. Uh, and we worked diligently, and as chair of the committee, I worked to bring us to consensus. I'm sorry to say that we did not achieve that. So I'm going to present to you tonight two options uh, that we can move forward with. One is associated with partnering with Power Options. We're a member of that organization, and I'll talk a little bit about the purchase power agreement and the benefit of having uh, their ability to procure supplies and, and create contracts on behalf of its members. And we can also, we will also explore the 
option of developing our own specifications with the partnership with Solar Design Associates, uh, putting that out for bid and managing that construction. So if we look at those two options and the pros and cons of each of those, something that our team and uh, committee has dedicated a lot of time to, let me start with the purchase power uh, uh, select uh, option with power options. Mm -hmm. And just to set uh, who power options is, they are a nonprofit that is has the mission to really uh, provide to the town their mission since 1998 is to provide comprehensive solutions for nonprofit energy needs. We save them time and money so they can focus their own resources on their communities and constituents. So really what they bring to the table with power options is they have uh, been secured by the Mass Clean Energy Center. They went out for procurement for we want to offer to our members, the 400 members that they have, the opportunity for purchase power agreements. We'll go out to put it out for bid. We'll get the bids. Whoever wins those bids then has responsibility to have turnkey types of solutions and to secure the supply chain so that we can provide the best, use our leveraging of our purchasing, uh, our large purchasing procurement option. So they did do that. They secured Select. You may recognize that name because they manage and operate the facility that we have in place today. So Select Energy is a niche, uh, that particular firm, uh, having worked at Eversource, you may know that's my day job. Uh, I met with our solar team today and uh, Select is, is in this space big time. They really deal with this mid-sized market uh, and they have a lot of projects going on. Uh, municipals of power options make up about 30% of that organization. What we gain from moving with the power options is just that. We would turn it over. They've pro provided us now a very attractive uh, purchase power agreement. It would, uh, it, they had provided us one in 2020. This one is actually an increase. Uh, they've lowered their price and they've increased the uh, KWH production. So it adds uh, great value to us. So um, they really did. They are serious about delivering our business uh, and have come through with a very attractive proposal. At the last, I was, I apologize that I could not be at the last meeting. I was, had a conflict at another board meeting I was attending. Uh, but the, uh, I know there was some discussion about this second option, which is let's go out and do what we did before. Let's get Solar Design Associates to create a set of specifications. Solar Design Associates is well known for being very highly regarded in their ability to design specifications and ensure high quality installations. We can go out, put it out for bid, and perhaps get a higher price. And I understand that there was a question about how much higher. We've done some math on that. So we believe that we could um, add to the value, potentially, if the high end, based on our estimates, you could add an additional 75000 to the uh, to the benefit to the town. Uh, but Per year? No. Over the term of 20 years, minus the 35000 we would pay select to do the aerosol design associates to do the design. So at the end of the day, it's about a $2,000 annual benefit to... Um, to this contract, and that is if the bids do come in at this high end. So um, we've done an audit of analysis on the benefits to the town. We're looking at just the reduction in the in, with their purchase power agreement, the, the benefit on the lowest, most conservative analysis, which is using the current uh, 
uh, service a generation price we're paying today would be over the term of the 20 years, well over $200,000. If we use the projections of pricing for generation that select projects, it could be in the $400,000 range. But regardless, they've offered us five and a half cents off of our uh, pricing. So it is a very, very uh, lucrative agreement for uh, power options. As I said, though, uh, we could put it out for bid and Solar Design Associates, and perhaps we can make that better. Now, let me talk about the risks because they are important to understand. We uh, secured our place in the SMART program last July 13th, 2021, and that allowed us to get our incentive slot. So the way that the SMART program works is that they have tranches of benefits, there's puts and takes. Once that tranche is filled, the next tranche is less beneficial. So we are in there, that's good news. We got a benefit of 0.15501 for SMART. That system has to be in and operating, verified by 12-31-2022, by the end of this year, or we will not get that benefit, and we will go back in line and there is lots of others that are in line ahead of us. So it will not be that high. We will lose that, and that will mean a rebidding of that PPA. Mm -hmm. So we are concerned about time, that we do need to get this in. We are concerned about supply chain. So while there are not any known issues, we are hearing noise in the solar community. I met with our Vice President of Solar Development today, Andy Belden, who came from the New England Clean Energy Center, and he's indicating that we are hearing noise from solar developers that there is concern about supply chain. So for that reason, I think you do need to understand those risks. Um, and that is one of the concerns as we think about which one is faster. Uh, obviously, going out with, a, uh, with the PPA would be a faster option. They guarantee they can bring it in in six months. As we think about uh, moving forward with an RFP, and I know we've provided you the contract, um, then we would need to put that out for, we'd need to design the specifications. We haven't uh, signed a contract with SDA. Then we would need to put it out for bid for 30 days, and then we would need to select that, and we'll bring that back to you. So let me just wrap it up to say, we're in a great seat here, right? <laughs> we've got an opportunity to save a lot of money for the town. We've got an opportunity to reduce our cost. Uh, we can go either way. Um, happy to work with Nick and Susan McFay and others to bring this in our solar committee. We are at the ready to do either. I wish I could have delivered to you a consensus opinion. That was not the case. Uh, so I deliver to you two options and apologize for adding to your burdens of decision making tonight. Thank you very much. Pete? So the lack of consensus opinion is that your committee is split in terms of uh, what they're recommending. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I worked okay. diligently to get the sense of the group. There is a slight majority that would favor mitigating risk moving ahead with the PPA. Um, but I would say there is a passionate group um, for doing solar design associates. And there's a few that are... Um, I would characterize could do either that um, didn't express a strong opinion either way. So for $2,000 a year of savings, Penny, so I, I've listened to you long enough that I know that how, how educated you are about this stuff. Um, I mean, if you had a recommendation, I would go with your recommendation, but you know, for $2,000 a year, that's not enough to factor into my decision one way or the other. 
if we can uh, get the uh, uh, PPA with uh, power options to, to make sure that we get the uh, six months or get it in before year end, that's more important to me, I guess. And so that, that, that's where I would be going. Thank you for that. So when we had this prior discussion, I think the real issue was around whether there was any technical reason why it would be better to have control of the design. You know, are, are there risks of just handing something over on a turnkey basis to, uh, in this case, power options that would cause you to want to literally control the design here in the town? What I hear in your comments is no, there's not really some major risk that you know, power options would spiral out of control and we would wind up with a plastic installation on top of the DPW that only works on windy days or perfectly <laughs> clear days or something like that. There's not a, there's not a practice, there's not a technical reasons why. I think that's I the disagreement, Gus. <laughs> that, that, I mean, Fred clearly thought that you'd get a better deal if you went with, uh, with, you went with SDA. Well, better, better deal's not what I'm asking about because I think we know what the You'd what get the better a better product. Is. It's the tech, is there... So we had one of our members review um, selects uh, a typical proposal from them. They provided us one they did for the other town, Andrew Jewell, who has experience with solar. And he was very satisfied with there was no red flags and no specification. Um, I would say it is solar. We're not talking building a nuclear plant here. Okay. Uh, uh and I think like Pete, I mean, Mike, I think you get credit for being the one that kind of raised this as, as even an issue, but I would, oh, no, one other question. Both options you think are doable by the end of the year? I think that you run a risk with solar design because let's just walk through the time frame. Let's presume that tonight you approve, let's go out for bed. Then I'll work with Nick and Susan, and they'll put develop they'll put it out develop with SDA. We have to develop specifications, which which then we'll need to review. Then we'll have to put it out for bid. My understanding we have to leave it out there for thirty days. Then we would need to bring all those back. Some group of us would need to assess that. I'm sure Nick would be involved, and others we would assess those. We would develop a recommendation. We'd come back to you. So I calculated that puts us into May, bringing it to you to sign a contract so you can see how time might be an issue here mm -hmm. especially if there's supply chain issues that's what i'm con I, personally i do have concerns about unexpected there's just random things that start to become a blockage for some of these projects well, I, don't, I don't think any of us had any reluctance to pursue a solar solution on the dpw garage so i'm with pete i'd go with the lower risk faster more straightforward solution and, and if it does provide you any um Consolation, I asked my uh, Andy Belden, who, um, who is our VP of solar, to, who sees all of these projects, to review the pricing on this. And uh, he felt that what um, Power Options had provided was very competitive. So I, I, I'm in agreement with Pete and Gus. And I think I'm, you know, I, this is my other hobby horse here is always in looking at when we take on new things, 
what are the long-term responsibilities going to be? What are we going to have to do over the long run? Because we have this long discussion about additional expenses falling to the town. The more responsibility we have, at some point, there's more expense, right? And I, I think it's, I'd like us to do a lot of solar as much as we can. I think it's great to do and we can do more of it. And so to the extent this is something that we can do that we're able to offload to a very capable third party, which is not true of most town services. So there's some things we do, we have to do. We have to hire town employees to do them. We have to do them ourselves. Um, but when you ha when you can get us pretty close to the same result for someone who has a company that has expertise in this area without having to develop our own internal expertise, there's no reason for towns to have to do this if you have other folks willing to do it to scale. And I think when you have it to scale and you can have that much greater ease of, of even if we have to fix something, they're going to have more access to fixing it than if we have to go out and figure it out ourselves. So I, I'm, I'm in favor of going. I appreciate laying out both of the options. I realize they're both good options. Like neither, yeah, neither are bad options. No. But I think for a town like ours where we're trying to limit, you know, we, we have limited hours in the day. We have a limited number of employees. We have a limited capacity to do a lot of stuff that we're, this is something where we can achieve something good uh, for the world and for the town overall. Um, and we can do it without having to take on more responsibility for ourselves. I think that's a good way to go. So thank you very much. for. I appreciate your opening because we're looking very forward as we do our climate action plan to develop a comprehensive plan about how we could optimize solar for the town and look forward to presenting that to you some point in the future. But thank you for your support. Um, I think uh, I think this is really exciting that we can start to move forward on this project. So thank you very much. You need a motion. Um, so what are, are we moving to go ahead with power options slash select? So we're, but at this point, we're not yet approving the contract. So you'll have to get a contract into right. us. Yeah. But yeah, so I move, I move that we approve the option of moving ahead with power options for uh, the project on the DPW garage. I'll second that. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Yep. Any opposed? All right. Thank you very much. Penny, can I ask you about uh, the next uh, solar project for the town? Because my, my understanding has always been that we're, we'd be better off if we did ownership rather than these PPAs. Is there is there... Uh, that we get more financial return, more bang for our buck. And we can borrow money at pretty low interest rates as a municipality. So are we gonna be looking at ownership in the future, do you think, or are we gonna, I've heard you talk about hybrids or something, and which I didn't understand very well, but. So um, many towns go with purchase power agreements because when you move into building it and constructing it yourself, then you need to move into the prevailing wage um, situations and there are tax benefits that these third parties are able to get that we are not able to secure. So that is why uh, many times these purchase power agreements start to look very attractive, plus the realization that you don't have to go out and raise capital and those types of things. However, uh, I don't disagree. Yes, it very well may be possible to put items out for bid and because you're putting a competitive procurement that you get that higher benefit. So there are pros and cons to that, uh, both of those. Um, so, yeah, I think, but the hybrid, I would note, has not been done by any municipality. I shared that with my solar team today, and they indicated you'd certainly want to take some look at some of the legal implications of that and some rules that may have to be addressed as we look at that. So I think that there are, um, and that option, by the way, is that you would do a PPA, and then in seven years, we would have the opportunity to buy it, and then we would own it and maintain it and have that full benefit. So that's the concept there. That way, the PPA allows them to take advantage of the tax credits, lower prevailing wage, blah, 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 
they they get all those benefits, allowing them to get that benefit, then the town is able to own it. Um, it it's just not been done in a town and something we would need to explore, something that certainly our committee has identified as something we uh, uh, would want to look at. Great. Thank you very much. All Thanks, right. Penny. Next, we have a uh, public hearing for the solicitor license application from Sunrun. Uh, John Yee, I think I see John in Zoom land. Just, you just declare it open. I think we'll declare the the here public hearing open yep. for the solicitor license. Is the application in the packet? I didn't see it. Should be in the packet. If not, uh, Mr. Yee is looking to do, um, he's requesting a one-year license, um, and he was looking to canvas Monday through Saturday, 11 to 530. Um, his application has been vetted by uh, the police chief. Okay. It should have been not in the packet. It would have been left at your seat, but I can get you a copy of it if you did not. Do you have a copy of the application? I, I didn't see it in the... I haven't seen it either. Under 60 pages. I got most of the way through it. Yeah, I flipped through it. I, I did. I didn't see it. Um, yeah, because the first, next thing I have after the uh, multifamily is uh, Jeff Peter Better. Yeah. Right, well, um, Mr. Yee, um, I don't know if you can turn your camera on or not. Um, if you want to just tell us a little bit about what you're um, proposing. Good evening. Hello. My name is John. Um, I work for I work for I work for Sunrun. Um, basically, door to door. Um, see which homes qualify. Um, I'd love to be able to work in the town of Medfield. And what is Sunrun? It's a solar company. And the request is for Monday through Saturday, 11 to 5? Yes, sir. 11 to 5.30? For a I year. thought it was Monday through Friday. Um, Monday through Saturday. Monday through Saturday. Saturday. Thank you. All right. Yeah. yeah. Pete, do you have questions? I don't know. Gus? Just uh, a quick question. You said you do solar, but is it that you're doing like free solar installations for people? That, what, what, what exactly does it mean to do solar? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. So it's similar to... Uh, Sorry, I couldn't, I didn't catch your name, but it, it's similar to the PK, basically see which homes can qualify to go solar at no cost. 
Um, but that's what Sunrun is doing. There is options of ownership and different ways of going about solar, but the way what we're doing mainly is the uh, PPA. Okay. This is like a lease, they lease the system, they lease the roof effectively? It's not exactly a lease. It's, it's kind of like a hybrid, um, not leasing or owning, but right in between. So instead, so the power purchase agreement, instead of paying for the panels, you just pay for the power that the panels produce because Sunrun owns the panels. So yeah. So you, uh, just and partly where my questions are coming from is that we've we've had a solarized Medfield program here, where residents can have solar installations put up on their roof. Uh, in that case, they're paying for the installation, and then the the credits and everything come to them. Uh, on the other hand, there have also been some installations that have been done here in town. I don't know that it was necessarily by Sunrun, but I know my neighbor has one on the roof of one of their buildings which they didn't pay for. Uh, and I guess I've never asked them exactly what the details are on that, but they didn't have to pay to put it up. I think they benefit. I, I think what it is is they benefit from a discounted electricity rate. Is that, I, I'm just trying to understand the nature of right. what you're proposing. You know, if you were going to go to a house, what, what would be the nature of the proposition that you'd be making in terms of what they pay for or what they don't pay for, or what they get, what they don't get. Right. So assuming that the house qualifies electrically, structurally, you know, roof, not a lot of trees, um, yep. Sunrun, our company, we covered the cost of the installation maintenance warranty for the 25 years that panels are up, depending on the way they plan on going about going solar, um, mainly through the PPA, they can get upgraded to solar at no cost and a reduced energy bill. Okay. So the kind of person that would want to do it would be someone first off who would likes the idea of getting more solar, you know, of contributing to the overall generation of solar energy and they would directly, it's not a net metering system, it's that they, they use electricity that you're producing and pay for it at a reduced rate. Exactly. Okay. And then do you, then do you all have an, I'm just curious how this works technically. Then do you all have a net meter above and beyond anything that they might use directly? Do you then have a net meter with Eversource so that you, if there's excess production, it gets fed into right. the system? So, so net metering, um, if let's say a house were to um, have enough sun, no, no problem with trees and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, say they were producing a little over everything they're currently using that excess power gets stored into the grid at no cost to the homeowners. Yep. And then when the sun's, um, when the sun goes down in the winter time, that excess credit comes back and the homeowners are able to use that credit on their okay. bill when the sun is not generating a lot of power. Okay. So they do get the net meter. They, they do get the net meter benefit. The owners do. I was yes. thinking maybe the sun run did, but it's the owners that get the net meter. Okay. Yeah. The homeowners do. Yes. Got it. Um, the only question I had is just about the duration of it. I mean, for a year, I don't know that we've ever approved one of these licenses for a year. Usually we approve them for three I'm months. I'm sorry, so yeah, I didn't know how long uh, I would be able to solicit or how exactly that worked out. I would, see, I would suggest that we do it for three months, which is sort of a typical period. 
And then if you want to okay. ask for an extension, you can come. It's not a, a, a it's renewable. It's, we've just never done it for a year before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing we ask is that on the days when you in, intend to be out there, I assume you won't be out there every day. You'll be in other towns on different days or, or will you be there every day? Um, probably not every day, but mainly in, in that general area with every source. So we, we just asked that, that if you could let the police department know the days you'll be there just so they know you're out okay. there. And so if they get calls um, from people in the neighborhood, they know that you're, you're out there and you have a license. So I, I does a three months sound okay to That's okay. Yep. Yeah, sure. All right. So why don't we have a motion to approve the request? I think the hours are fine, 11 to 530. Um, approve the request for three months starting today through whatever three months from today is. And if, you want, if you're doing well and you want to keep going, you can come back. Okay, right. sounds good. We have a motion, Gus? Okay, yeah, I move, I move that we approve the uh, solicitor license application for Sunrun by Mr. John Yee for a three-month period in accordance with the uh, times and details uh, provided in the application. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? All right. Thank you very much. Good luck. Thank you so much. Thank All you. right, next we have uh, Jeffrey Petter from Zealous Beer Company requesting a one-day Beer license to serve and sell beer at CrossFit Medfield on March 11th from 4 to 9 p.m. Welcome. I thought I said, there he is. He's there. Hello? Jeff, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Good. Enjoying the winter? So is there, is there something unusual about this request, or is that it's that it's it's in our it's in a live and in person appearance as opposed to a consent agenda item? Is there? Jeff <laughs> hadn't been in in a while and thought yeah, it might just, be nice to yeah, we, appear in person. That's great. We're happy to have you. We kind of missed you too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. I hope you guys are well. Lulu's So is there some kind of event going on in CrossFit Medfield that day, or? Yeah, they invited us to um, come to an event. They do something called Friday Night Lights. And I think they're having a bunch of local vendors, including a, a lobster truck. And I'm not sure who else. And, and um, I said, yes, but we, need a, we need a license to be able to do it. Okay. Any questions, Pete? We've done it no. We have done it before. Okay. The same. Any no question. All right. We have a motion. Sure. I move that we approve the request for a one-day beer license to serve and sell beer at CrossFit in Medfield on March 11th from 4 to 9 p.m. for Zealous Beer Company. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. All right. Jeff, is your tasting room open yet? I keep, I go over there rarely, and every time I go over, the lights are out, and I, I kind of like think of you every time I'm there. I just never see it open. Are you back up and running yet, or how's that going? Uh, we are open on Friday nights, Saturday nights, uh, Saturdays, and Sundays. Okay, so, I'm just yes. going over yeah. on the wrong days. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good to know because I have a gift certificate that I wanted at like a charity auction a couple of years ago <laughs> to your place that I haven't been able to use yet. So it's good to know. We'll we'll see if we can. Maybe I'll see you on Friday. So <laughs> we, we will we will honor your gift certificate. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. All right. All right. Uh, next item. Uh, review and discuss proposed utility and access easement with Medfield Holdings LLC for the Hinkley South project. 
Well, I'll recuse myself from that then. Pete is recused. Christine, you want to talk about this? I believe Mark is going to give an update on this. Mark, do you want to talk about this? Um, so this has to do with the specifics of the uh, easements that are needed to get across uh, the town parcel uh, to the main property. Uh, I've been working back and forth uh, with attorney uh, Jim Murphy. Um, we've gone through multiple drafts revisions. I'm comfortable with the current state of it. And uh, it was a matter of putting it in front of you to see if you had any questions or issues. The only, the only thing is, uh, and, and there's two open issues. One, uh, they're both kind of procedural. Uh, one, I've indicated to Mr. Murphy, I want this as part of the deed. I don't want a standalone easement. That's that's just a recipe for a problem. And uh, and secondly, there has to be a, a, a sketch, at least a sketch plan, if not a re separate recordable plan generated that uh, delineates the easements. Yes. I don't really have any questions as long as you're comfortable with the, the terms. And I don't think, frankly, there's anything that you have to formally do tonight either. I mean, it's just part and parcel of working towards a closing, unless you had some, as I said, unless you had some questions or issues that we needed to take up. Well, it looked fine to me when I read it. So you don't need us to approve this now? This is Not just right an now. Update. Okay. All right. Next up, uh, Pete, you can come back. F FY 2023 budget review. So over the last few weeks, we've presented to you uh, both an overview of the Medfield uh, revenues we anticipate coming in in terms of our budget, as well as what the town department uh, budget requests are. I've left at your seat the full picture of what our fiscal year 23 budget looks like. Um, obviously, we are working with the Warren Committee. They're meeting on a weekly basis through March um, to review those department requests. Most of the Warren Committee members have already met, I believe, um, with their town departments to talk about that. Um, between what we have available in revenue and what has been requested by departments, um, we have a delta of $927,706. So the Warrant Committee uh, is working on reducing that. So I'll be uh, putting a jar outside in case anybody has any loose changes you leave the meeting this evening. Any questions, Pete? No, no. Yes. The only, uh, this is not necessarily pertinent to tonight. The, the one thing that crossed my mind over the last week or two is when we're looking at this year's budget uh, across the board, all, you know, schools and town, will we have a clear view of how the relief funds are supplementing the budget. What, I, what I'm getting at is I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm looking at the spreadsheet on how much budgets are increasing. I'm saying, well, in, in some ways they don't look too bad, but it's like, well, but is that because the actual increases are masked by this other relief funds that are over here? So even though these increases don't look bad in a normal year, 
it may be that the budgets are increasing quite a bit because there's this other piece. Is there a way that we can? So I think uh, if you review the school committee presentation, uh, Dr. Marsden presented, they have, I believe it's called the ESSER 3 grant, uh, which is about $374,000, which they are using to supplement their operating budget. Okay. Um, we don't have any of the ARPA money currently supplementing this budget. So um, this is a straight up, this is a, this on the town side, at least, on this the town is a side. true picture of budget, how the budget's yes. changing. Um, uh, and, and not that anybody wants to hear my ARPA uh, soapbox statement again. Um, but if we are able to uh, settle our issue with Norfolk County, then we are anticipating a lot of that to offset our capital budget requests over the next several years. Okay. Does that mean that any of that will help that 977,000 number or? No. And then uh, and what you're, I think I hear you saying is on the school side, that delta is a 300 some thousand. Correct. If you wanted to look at it and really know what the schools are doing, it'd be about another 300,000. Yes. And I can, uh, for actually, if you okay. look at the budget website, their presentation is on there that discusses uh, how okay. they're using that grant this year. Okay. Does that also qualify as the update from the town administrator on American <laughs> Super Act federal funds? Yes. I, I will save you from my, uh, you can just watch the Warren Committee from last week. But, um, <laughs> Uh, Senator Markey's office reached out to several of the Norfolk County towns last week to ask for an update and some more information that they were going to bring and talk with Treasury. So hopefully we'll have an update uh, within the next week or so. Great. All right. Next action item. Vote to accept and sign the agreement uh, to grant terms and conditions for the Metro West Health Foundation grant to the Medfield Health Department for the Municipal Public Health COVID-19 Response Project. Any questions, Pete? Nope. Yes. Nope. Motion. I move that we accept and sign the agreement to grant terms and conditions for the Metro West Health Foundation grant to the Medfield Health Department for the Municipal Public Health COVID-19 Response Project. Second. All in favor? Yes. Aye. Any opposed? All right. Next, vote to accept a grant from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Department of Energy Resources Green Communities Program uh, in the amount of $179,884 and authorize the chair and the town administrator to sign the standard state grant contract documents. Um, Thank you very much to the Energy Committee and to Amy. I think Amy worked. Did Amy work on this? Grant I think application? Amy, Nick, Nick, um, and Susan. Susan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So thank you to Amy, Nick, Susan, and the Medfield Energy Committee for uh, putting together this application, which is uh, also supplementary to our capital and municipal uh, building stabilization budgets. Questions, comments, Pete? No, no. I think it's great. Uh, the town's benefiting. One. Is, there, is it? Is in the back of my head, it seems to me that these grants are like the limit on what you could ask for a grant is like two hundred thousand. So if you're asking for one hundred seventy-nine thousand, and we got it, that's pretty close mm -hmm. to. We're, we're using the the uh, envelope yeah, pretty we're, effectively. We're maximizing it, and Susan and Amy are working on a plan to have these all these projects complete and reported in time, so that we'd be. A, um, available to apply again right away in September. Yeah. So to double Great. dip. Great. Great. Uh, yeah. I uh, move that we accept a grant from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Department of Energy Resources Green Communities Program in the amount of $179,884 and authorize the chair and town administrator to sign the standard state grant contract documents. I will second that. All in favor? Yep. Right. Any opposed? All right. Next, vote to appoint record access officers and update the public records policy. Pete? So, oh, I was just going to give you a brief update. So I um, have had on my list that we needed to update the policy now that Marianne Benaldi was named uh, or elected town clerk. 
Um, when I pulled out the policy to do that and read through our public records policy, it was woefully inadequate and did not track uh, what the law was. So we had Brittany update it, and I believe she works with Mark, who has edited it as well. So this will bring us up to compliance. Pete, questions, comments? Nope. Gus? Nope. I thought it was good when I read it. We have a motion. I move that we appoint uh, the record access officers and update the public records policy to uh, actually hit me with the names here. So it's going to be to reflect Marion Rinaldi and, and myself. Christine Kierweiler. And for the schools, it'll be Dr. Marsden and Michael LaFrancesca. And Dr. Marsden and Michael LaFrancesca as the record access officers. Second. All in favor? Aye. Yep. Any opposed? All right. Next, vote to sign Eagle Scout certificates recognizing Colby Matthew Hatch, Brady Robert Gibson, and Kenneth Robitaille Manning of Boy Scout Troop 89. Gus, ready? I move that we sign the Eagle Scout certificates recognizing Colby Matthew Hatch, Brady Robert Gibson, and Kenneth Robitaille uh, Manning of Boy Scout Troop 89. Second. All in favor? Yeah. Aye. Aye. Any opposed? All right. Next, vote to appoint Robert Tandler to the Cemetery Commission. Tandler. Tandler, isn't it? Tandler. I thought you said Taylor. Sorry. Oh, Robert Tandler to the Cemetery Commission for a term to expire on June 30th, 2023. Yes. Questions, comments, discussion, concerns? No. Um, he's recommended by the Legion, I believe. Yes, through Frank Eiffel. All right. Okay. Motion. Uh, I move that we appoint Robert Tandler to the Cemetery Commission for a term to expire on June 30th, 2023. Second. All in favor? Yeah. Any opposed? All right. Next, vote to approve and sign a grant agreement with Norfolk County for American Rescue Plan Act grant funds and authorize Town Administrator Christine Truweiler to submit applications to Norfolk County for ARPA funding distribution to Medfield. So this is not that I'm agreeing to their ridiculous formula that they came up with. I am agreeing to be a subrecipient and eventually take all of my money. Okay. We have a motion. I move that we approve and sign the grant agreement with Norfolk County for American Rescue Plan Act grant funds and authorize Town Administrator Christine Trierweiler to submit applications to Norfolk County for ARPA funding distribution to Medfield. Second. All in favor? Aye. Yes. Any all right. Uh, notice this and comment. We've got consent agenda. Kathy Schickel requests approval for the sixth annual Run Like a Maverick 5K to be held on May 8th, 2022. Have a motion. I move that we approve the request uh, for the sixth annual Run Like a Maverick 5K to be held on May 8th, 2022. Second. All in favor? Yeah. Any opposed? Great. All right. We have meeting minutes for October 5th, 2021, January 18th, 2022. I had put some minor comments directly into the Google Doc. Thank you to Brittany for that uh, method. It's great. <laughs> um, Pete and Gus, do you have a chance to review the minutes? I did, yes. I had no problems with them. And I I took a leap. I saw what you had done in the edits. I made some further edits in Google Docs and, and just said, I think this all worked. I just kind of like, I didn't save we, it. It just kind of yeah. goes in and I tried printing it out, reloading it and my things were still there. So um, I, I have just, just a, uh, this is more an intellectual curiosity uh, question. It talks about how Mr. Murphy motioned things and it seems, I think the right word is moved. 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 So it's a, I don't think you have to necessarily correct it, but going forward, uh, I, I motioned kind of like, Right. That's motion. Move, moving is making Move commenting, Mr. Move, yeah, moving motioned right. in the so, general yes. direction. Um, and then, uh, so I, I made the editorial changes. The only 
so I did kind of what you did. There's some edits, but they're wordsmithing. The only thing that I added on the, I believe it was the January 18th, it was the discussion of the Aura uh, project. I had asked specifically about whether or not there were veterans preferences. And just for records purposes, I wanted to get that in there. So I appended that to your, your uh, not to change anything. We approved it the way it was, but I just wanted to put that into the record. Yep. Uh, and actually, Brittany asked me about that today and she was going to go back and rewatch it. But I did confirm that you did ask that. Yeah. And then I did talk with Sarah to answer your question. And when the Legion was first proposing that development, they were talking about having just veterans housing. But then in the end, uh, this was the, the plan they came up with once Aura got involved. Okay, and, and the, the thing that I have not done was to actually call the the, the veterans to, or VFW to, so they know that this change was made. None of this is a surprise to them. No, not at all. They originally had been discussing a proposal like this, um, and then when they were uh, approached by these developers, they went with this plan instead. Ah, okay, yep. so, okay. so they knew what they were getting into. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yep. that's all I cared about. Okay. Motion to approve the minutes. I move that we approve the minutes for October 5th, 2021 and January 18th, 2022. Second. All in favor? Yep. Aye. Any opposed? All right. Town Administrator updates? I have nothing this evening. All right. Next meeting date is March 1st, 2022, March 15th, March 22nd. Selectman reports. Pete. Uh, can I, on the meeting, meeting, I wanted to bring one thing up on this. I've been pushing for a public hearing and we've been pushing it out month by month. And I think that March would be, I, I would kind of like us to kind of commit to something, but um, is there, could we target either the 15th or the 22nd? I don't think it's the first, obviously, but could we target the 15th or the 22nd as the date that we're planning to have that public hearing? I'm thinking it would be a hybrid because there may be some people that would like to call in. And I'm thinking it might be at the public safety building would be the place to do it. Is that reasonable to you guys? Well, I thought the next step, weren't we going to schedule a workshop with the school committee of some kind? Correct. So I did uh, reach out to the chair, Jess Riley, um, and I believe she was polling her school committee members to come up with some dates. Uh, I told her we'd be available that first week of March other than that Tuesday. And I, and I they picked I either the second. They were going to come back on the sec for, with the second and third, at least based on their discussion. Here's here's my issue. I've been I've been pushing for this since December. and We're doing a slow walk to not do it. I've talked to two school committee members early, early or in the past, neither one thought it was a great idea. Um, they may choose to do it, and that's fine, but I don't really like the idea that we're gonna yet wait yet another month to see if they've changed their mind, and if they say they don't wanna do it, when are we gonna do it? I'm saying pick a date, and then if they wanna join us, that's great. We should, I, I'm anticipating we're gonna have that workshop on, I think they said the second or third of March were the dates that they said in their, in their meeting Oh, okay. that I listened to. Those are the two dates and those either date works for me. So it's, I'm not doing this because I don't want them to be here, but it's like, this is, we're now three months out from when I first floated this. And now we're saying, well, maybe we don't do it or we don't figure out whether we're going to do it until sometime in March. So that's going to be in April. And then we'll have school vacation week and then, oh, we have a town meeting. So if we don't kind of pick a date, that we could always, I suppose, change it if for some reason they said, oh, the 15th, 22nd don't work, but the 29th would. That's okay. I'm just saying we're not making a decision here. And the, the early indications I've gotten is that they're not interested in doing it. So, or at least at the early stages of the thought process, they weren't. Well, I think it would be useful to talk directly to them about it. I, but, but I'd like to pick a date. It's like, when are we going to talk to them? Well, if we're going to meet, if we're going to have a workshop on the second or third, we can talk to them as part of that. that can I get a commitment that we're going to pick a date in March that we're going to run this thing? No, no. 
<laughs> not for me. I mean, I want to. I want to hear their view on it. I haven't had any discussions with them about it. If you say you've talked to two of them, they don't think it's a good idea. They've said that they don't want to be. They they weren't sure that they wanted to be part of it. That's correct. Right. And so, I'm saying the selectmen should have this public mirroring meeting regardless. And that may be the case, but I would like to hear it out and maybe persuade them that they should want to be a part of it because I think it would be better if it was all together. I would agree with you. It would be better if we're all together. Right. And so I think that I think the way to get to that end game would be to actually talk to them about it. So we're going to we're going to wait two more weeks and plus and then maybe they'll want to and maybe they won't and then what will we do? Wait until the 15th of March, which is our next meeting to decide whether we're going to pick a date for the public hearing. No, I think if if we have the discussion at the workshop and, and either they want to do it or they don't want to do it or we want to do it, we don't want to do it, we could then pick a date then and say this is what we're going to have at public I'm hearing. Sorry. This is what the agenda is going to be. I mean, I, look, I've said that I think that the public hearing would be more productive with the newly elected boards and committees rather than the lame duck boards and committees just in terms of a hearing that's going to go to the people who are actually going to have to carry it forward. So you would prefer to have a hearing after the election? Yeah, I mean, I just think to me where you're going to have one new selectman, you're going to have one to two new school committee members that the most, that if the idea is this is focused on moving this forward, um, that, that yeah, those are the people who are going to have to move it forward. Because whatever, it doesn't matter what I think, it doesn't matter what the departing school committee members think. I'm happy to have one. I mean, I, I, out of deference to you and your desire to have one and my respect mm -hmm. for you, I would have one before then. I would say for me, it's going to be more productive if you're going to have it as, here. Are, here's the school committee and here's the select board that's going to have to actually do this project and actually have to push it forward. If, they, that, if those are the people hearing the hearing or at the hearing or the, the listeners of the hearing. But I also want to hear from the school committee because they we may have in that workshop discussion a reason to do it on the schedule you want to do it on. I, I, I'm not averse to doing it one way or the other. I'm just thinking in terms of the overall productivity of the exercise, it does seem to me that having the people who are actually going to be responsible for pushing it ahead are the ones who should be the I, I, in my first half, the way I'm looking at this public hearing, it's actually a process of trying to pull the town back together. It's not, it's not what's our project going to be. It's a matter of taking inputs from the public about what we need to keep in mind as we move forward. So it's a softer purpose. And I'm, I'm painfully aware that these votes were taken in November. And now we are two, you know, two months, two and a half months, three months out, and haven't had a, a public conversation. And that that's not a good way to do it. I don't think you want to have that conversation right in front of the town meeting. Uh, so it's just, I'm, I am frustrated because there's been silence for three months and it's just not how I think this should have gone. I think there should have been a conversation with the public about it's going to be a forward-looking conversation. It's not a question of what did we do wrong. That's not the question. It's like, what are the things you want the town to keep in mind as it comes moves forward with reconceiving a new project? What key things should you do you believe we should be keeping in mind? And yeah, again, I don't. I have open, that's no an aversion. Open conversation. It's just we've been pushing it off and pushing it. No off. No aversion to that okay. that discussion. So let's talk to the school committee. I'm, I'm comfortable that we're we are expecting yeah. that we will set a date for this during that workshop, with or without. With or without. I'll tell you guys if you want to do okay. this with or without them, I will set a date and we can have the hearing. Sure. And you know, okay, I, I, I will defer to you on that. I don't think it's the most productive way to do it, but I will defer to you and your desire to do it. Okay. So.
on it. Chris, um, when you talk to them about the workshop, uh, I'm I'm scheduled already on uh, March second, so I can't do March second. Okay. But I think I was I was good either. I'm good either either day. Okay. Uh, and I'm assuming that's still what they're planning. That's what they discussed at the meeting. Yeah, good either day. All right. All right. So now I am declaring that. We need to go into executive session for the purposes of discussing the purchase exchange lease or value of real property and to conduct contract negotiations with non-union personnel to with the fire chief. And having these discussions and conducting these negotiations in public would be detrimental to the town. And the open session will not resume at the conclusion of the executive session. Do we have a motion? Yes, I move that the Medfield Board of Selectmen go into executive session for the following purposes, to discuss strategy with respect to collective bargaining, if an open meeting may have a detrimental effect on the bargaining position of the public body, and the chair so declares as he has, and to consider the purchase exchange lease or value of real property, if an open meeting may have a detrimental effect on the negotiating position of the public body, and the chair so declares, which he has, uh, and uh, the... Uh, so the open session will not reconvene at the conclusion of the executive session. Select the member that um, to conduct contract negotiations with non-union personnel. You said collective bargaining the first time. Uh, sorry, I was reading it off the ones that are the option, but okay. So correction on the first one is to discuss strategy with uh, respect to negotiations with non-union personnel. If an open meeting we ha may have a detrimental effect on the bargaining position of the body and the chair so declares as he has. Same as the fire chief. You William want to call it the fire chief? Huh? William Carrico. Name of the fire chief. The, the Medfield fire chief. Medfield fire chief. <laughs> <laughs> Here I've been using this thing as my standard motion thing for so long. Do we have a second? Here we go. We have a second. All in favor? Yeah. Roll call. Roll call. All right. Mr. Peterson? Yes. Mr. Murphy? Yes. Mr. Marcucci? Yes. All right. Good night, everyone. We are executive sessioning.